It's a great joy to welcome you here on the third Sunday in Advent as we are in this season of preparing our hearts for the coming of the Lord, not only for his birth in Bethlehem, but for his return, just as we've confessed this morning. And it's good to sing, good to hear children's choirs, and all of this congregation is a great choir joining the hosts of heaven to laud and magnify the Lord's name. Music is such a great part, and we're in Luke's gospel looking at four songs here in this Advent season that come to us and as a way of communicating the gospel. Music's just such a great part of this season. I, um, uh, uh, several weeks ago, uh, conducted a highly scientific poll on Facebook um, to discover, I wanted, you know, clear data on the worst Christmas songs um, that were clearly despised. And can I just say that, um, uh, and there were, a huge number of responses, uh, strong feelings were expressed. I mean, if you put up on Facebook a prayer, you'll get like four amens. Ask people what they don't like, get ready. Going to make Twitter look calm. Um, if I hear one more time, all I want for Christmas, I'm going to gouge my ears out. Dogs whine and cats hide. Ow! Uh, wonderful Christmas time by Paul McCartney. It's awful. It's irritating. I cannot stand it. Um, Dominic the donkey is my favorite Christmas tune. This is my hill. I am prepared to die on it. Wow. So, but anyway, here's the way it came out. Uh, least, least liked Christmas song, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer. Now this was followed, Grandma Got Run Over by a Reindeer was followed quickly by one, I was this many years old before I knew even existed, Grandpa Gonna Sue the Pants Off Santa because grandma got run over by the reindeer, right? So uh, then third, Dominic, the Italian Christian donkey. Um, number four, I want a hippopotamus for Christmas. Uh, annoying beyond comprehension was one comment. And then, and then a new one. I, I have only just encountered, it's a Carrie Underwood song. That, uh, I've got my stretchy pants on. Which seems to me like that's a song for December 26th. Not December 25th. <laughs> So when we sing and when we delight and rejoice, we can, we can actually uh, find in the words of Scripture the sacred truth, words and lyric inspired by the Holy Spirit that we can treasure in our hearts. And so follow along with me as we read Mary's song. In Luke chapter 1, in verse 46, And Mary said, my soul magnifies the Lord, and my spirit rejoices in God my Savior. For he has looked on the humble estate of his servant. For behold, from now on, all generations will call me blessed. For he who is mighty has done great things for me, and holy is his name. And his mercy is for those who fear him. From generation to generation, he has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. And he has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. He has filled the hungry with good things, and the rich he has sent away empty. He has helped 
his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and to his offspring forever. And this is the gospel of the Lord. Well, here in Advent, what are we doing? What are we saying about this coming of the Lord? What do we mean by the birth of Jesus and by his return? Advent is this season of preparation for the inbreaking of heaven into our world that undoes the devastation that we afflicted on it with our rebellion against God. Advent means that death and disease and despair and drug addiction and homelessness and murder and hate and war and orphanhood and poverty and hunger and thirst and tears and grief have an expiration date. These are not the original intention of God for humanity or any part of creation, and they will not last. They will be ended when the Christ who was born returns and wraps all things up and wipes from our tear, our tears from our cheeks with his very fingers. This is the promise that we hold to. And the reason we do this is because God, as Mary notes in her song, is faithful. God is the faithful God. Look at verse 50. His mercy is for those who fear him from generation to generation. Friends, there is a gestation period for every promise that God makes. When God makes a promise, he carries it across generations. We tend to think that when God makes a promise, he will fulfill it instantaneously. But the testimony of Scripture is that God announces his intention, and then, as Jeremiah puts it, watches over his word to accomplish it. And God does this according to his timetable, not according to ours. We could wish that he fulfilled it immediately, or at least shortly. But God came to Abraham and Sarah and said, even though Sarah's barren, she'll miraculously become pregnant and have a child. But they waited year after year after year for that to occur. It came, but they waited. God promised to Abraham that he would rescue his descendants from the land of Egypt in a great Passover miracle. But They were slaves in Egypt. They lived there for 100 years. If God came to Spanish River today and said, I have a great work I'm going to do through you, and you say, oh, amen, hallelujah, it's going to happen 400 years from now. I'd like you to make a pledge towards that work. (laughs) A lot of people go, 400 years? I don't know about that. But that's what Abraham heard. God promised to his people that he would send a Messiah, and they waited thousands of years, but he came. And when he came, he came in a way that they did not expect. They thought he would be a king like David with military and political power, overthrowing the Romans and ending their domination and making of Israel a great new economic and political power there in the world and subduing all their enemies. That's what they were hoping for. But the Messiah shows up not as a powerful military and political leader, 
but as a helpless baby in a manger, recognized only by Persians from afar. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Where's the king? A different kind of king. Not a king who demands that we die to extend his empire, but a king who dies so we can enter his realm. The one who was on high, who empties himself and comes low so that we can be raised to newness of life. God kept his promise. Even though it took centuries, it was generation to generation. The children singing up here this morning are not simply cute. They are a reminder that when God makes his promise, he never makes his promise just to one person. He makes that promise to that person and all who descend from that person. That's the way covenant works. God makes his promise. God keeps his promise. That's why J.C. Ryle wrote, God's promises are the manna that we eat every day, our daily drink as we travel through the wilderness of the world. That means that just like Mary, just like Zachariah and Elizabeth, just like Moses, just like Esther, just like all of these folks, we have to be people who learn to Hold on to the promise knowing that God is faithful. Holding on to the promise is what Israel always did and what's what God's people continue to do. It's a challenge to hold on. On September 4th, 1987, a pilot named Henry Dempsey sat with his co-pilot in the front of an Eastern Airlines commuter plane it's only a 15-passenger plane. There weren't any passengers on it. They were moving it from Portland, Maine to Boston. And after they took off, they noticed there was a little light on in the cockpit that indicated a rear door at the back of the plane was ajar. It wasn't shut properly. Well, they, they didn't see anything that would indicate that was the case. But Dempsey said to his co-pilot, here, you take the controls. I'm going to go back there and check on it. The New York Times Put it this way, the pilot of a commuter airliner was sucked partway out of his plane, clinging to the rear stairs as the co-pilot landed the aircraft. The Washington Post says that when Dempsey went back to check on the door, the plane hit turbulence and the door flew open. The co-pilot looked back and he saw the door open and he couldn't see Dempsey. And so he put in a report to begin a search. But Dempsey was back there, hanging out backwards, his head off the bottom of the ladder that was attached to the door, holding on at several thousand feet until his co-pilot could land the plane. And when he did, he was astonished to get back there and see Dempsey still hanging on. When the EMTs got there, it took them 10 minutes to pry his fingers off the ladder. He knew how to hold on. There are many people who are holding on today. We hold on to the promise of God. Because the promise that Christ will return is as sure and certain as the promise that he would come. And when he came, he came in mercy. Verse 54, 
Let's look at this. God is not only faithful, God is gracious. Verses 51 and 53, let's have a look. He has shown strength with his arm. He has scattered the proud in the thoughts of their hearts. He has brought down the mighty from their thrones and exalted those of humble estate. Notice how God handles the proud. God humbles the proud. Why does God humble the proud? You and I are full of pride. Pride is the basic root sin of humankind. It's what affected the fall. The enemy of your soul and mine appealed to Adam and Eve and said, God's holding out on you. If you'll just rebel against him and eat from this fruit of the tree, you'll become like God. Knowing good and evil, that word knowing meaning determining for yourself. You'll be like God. You'll make your own rules. You'll have your own throne. That was very appealing. There have always been those who in their pride reject God. They don't want him to rule over their hearts. They're proud in their hearts. We do not want to admit and confess that we need a savior, that we need to be humbled. But God in his grace and mercy brings us down from our lofty, exalted view of ourselves and reveals to us our need. When Adam and Eve fell and rebelled against God, the very first thing that God said to them when he came to them was a question. He said, Adam, where are you? Now, God didn't ask that question because God didn't know where Adam was. He asked it so Adam had to acknowledge where he was. I'm here. And there he was, covered with fig leaves. He made a garment to cover his nakedness. And God looked at him and said, this is not a fashion week garment that's gonna do. You are trying to cover up and hide from what you've done. That's the impulse that every one of us have. We try to hide from the reality of what's in our hearts, the words we've said, the attitudes that we possess, the actions in our lives that lead to the vandalism of creation and our relationships, which are self-destructive. We cover them all up. And we have to bring them out in the open to God. So intent are we at self-covering and self-hiding that when God said to Adam the next question, what did you do? Adam said, the woman you gave me. There's a move, isn't it? You know, it was, it was, I was fine, I was fine. It was her. Really, who's he accusing? The woman you gave me. We want to blame God for our situation. In our pride, we believe we're incapable of sin. And if we do sin, it's not that bad. But God brings us out into the open and he 
helps us understand that the way we've been living is inconsistent with his ways and destructive. And this is where the most surprising of conversions occur. Take Ayan Hirsi Ali. Ali is a columnist with Unheard. She's a research fellow at the Stanford University Hoover Institution. She's also a former member of the Radical Muslim Brotherhood. After 9-11, she grew uncomfortable with the way in which violence had taken place in the name of what she held to. And she rejected it. And in her, and with her, significant intellectual ability became an atheist, and a leading atheist at that. She picked up Bertrand Russell's famous essay, Why I Am Not a Christian. And she writes, Russell and the other activist atheists believe that with the rejection of God, we would enter an age of reason and intelligent humanism. How's that working out for you? But the God hole has merely been filled by a jumble of irrational quasi-religious dogma. The result is a world where modern cults prey on the dislocated masses, offering them spurious reasons for being. The line often attributed to G.K. Chesterton is turned into a prophecy. When men choose not to believe in God, they do not thereafter believe in nothing. They become capable of believing in anything. And in the middle of that atheism, she was very outspoken, working with the likes of Richard Dawkins and Christopher Hitchens to promote the new atheism. She began to understand that the values that the atheists were cherishing and promoting, like human dignity and personal freedom, had no foundation within atheism, that if there was no God, as Dostoevsky says, then all things are permitted. And that the roots of something like every single one of us being valuable, or every single one of us having the capacity for will and choice, and that that's something honorable and good, were rooted not in the classical world and certainly not in atheism, but in the Jewish and Christian thought she'd been taught as a child to hate. And everything began to unravel for her. And she came to Christ. I have turned to Christian faith because I found that life without any spiritual solace is unendurable. Indeed, very nearly self-destructive, atheism failed to answer a simple question. What is the purpose of life? Ayan Hirsi Ali this last year gave her life to Christ. And she is now your sister in the Lord. Because God is gracious to us. He meets us in our pride, in our arrogance, our self-asserted thought that we can be our own gods, that we can save ourselves and the world, but it leaves us 
utterly frustrated. God humbles us, and this is grace. God gives grace to the humble, but resists the proud. It is a humbling thing to admit you need a savior. It is a humbling thing to know that you are broken and that our hearts are capable of the worst sins that we condemn in others. That as you go through a week pointing a finger at others and their wickedness and their misdeeds, that your heart is capable of the same and that you too can no longer cover yourself with a fig leaf. You have to admit your nakedness and let Christ come and clothe you with the garments of his glory and righteousness. This is why he came. He came to pay the, the penalty for the sinful pride and all that flows from it. He bore it on the cross. He died to deliver us from everlasting damnation and to secure for us Meaning, purpose, knowing God is the first step towards knowing ourselves and living as God created us to live. And that means that God is merciful. In verse 54, he has helped his servant Israel in remembrance of his mercy as he spoke to our fathers, to Abraham and his offspring forever. Thousands of years before Mary sings this, Abraham heard a promise that in his seed all the families of the earth would be blessed. It wouldn't be just a limited number. It would be all the nations, all the peoples of the world, every tribe and tongue and people and nation and under heaven. God has mercy on all who call upon him. Mercy means that we don't receive what we do deserve. We deserve punishment, but God has mercy on us. Jesus bears the punishment in our place. Grace means we do receive what we don't deserve. God graces us with forgiveness. God graces us with the Spirit. God graces us with communion with his people. God graces us with eternal life. God graces us with his word. God graces us with hope in the middle of the dark world we call home. And that is why we hold to the promise. Because I don't have to remind us this morning that the darkness is real. From hostages longing for home and their families for reunion to empty seats in the homes of families whose loved ones are no longer with them and in every row in this building, there are people who are shattered. And they have to wonder, is there hope in the darkness? One of the finest believers I ever heard was a woman named Corey Tenboom. Corey Tenboom, along with her sister and her father, were rounded up by the Nazis from their home in Amsterdam and put in the Buchenwald death camp. Her sister died, her father died. By a clerical error, Corey was released. And she learned that she even had to forgive her captors because Jesus came 
to forgive her. And she wrote about her time in that death camp, in the misery, the torture, the pain, the darkness of it. I've experienced God's presence in the deepest, darkest hell that men can create. I have tested the promises of the Bible, and believe me, you can count on them. My friends, there is no hell people have created worse than those death camps, and the promises of God carried her through. And there is nothing you and I are facing right now that the promises of God, the covenant-making, covenant-keeping God, will not carry you through. Why? Because Christ, who was on high, humbled himself. Not in pride, but in love was he on high and came. And he became a servant. And he went to the cross and he died. And he rose again. And because of this, because he stooped low to wash our feet, because he hung between heaven and earth to wash away our sins, he is then exalted on high and is at the right hand of the Father. And he will be there until every knee bows and every tongue confesses that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. All who've ever lived on judgment day will say Jesus is Lord. But only those who believe now will say it with joy. Do you believe? Hold to the promise. Have you not yet come to faith? I invite you to do so. To put your trust in the God who makes his promise and keeps his promise so that you can sing with Mary Oh, magnify the Lord with me. God has done great things for us, and holy is his name. Amen? Let's stand together and bless the Lord.